When's the last time you were corrected on how you ate? When's the last time somebody looked at you and went, you hold your fork that way? Or began checking in on you? Or why are your elbows on the table? Or I can't believe you do that with your waffles. When's the last time you were corrected in what you ate? And how did you receive it? How do you receive that correction when somebody looks at you and says, that's not how you consume something. Today we're going to be discussing consumption of scriptures. Last week, I hope as we gathered together, you took away from that that it is vital, it's important that we as believers are investing ourselves in the Word, that within these pages are, are teachings and trainings that cannot take place unless you're rigorously investing yourself in this. And that being said, this week I want to come together today, we're going to talk about scriptures again, but we're going to talk about specifics. How do you get the most out of your scripture reading? How do you get the most out of the Bible? That said, uh, this is going to be a lot of information very quickly. A lot of information very quickly. Uh, I want you to know, in the aftermath of every sermon that we do here, within hours, Floyd usually has the sermon up on YouTube. So if you're scribbling notes and you're like, I can't keep up or my hand's cramping up, just go back to YouTube later in the afternoon. There's a little gear icon on the lower right. And if you click it, it'll even let you slow me down. So give it a go if you need it. The reason I ask you about how you receive correction about eating is because that's essentially what we're going to be doing today. Now, I'm not claiming to be the foremost expert in the world on the study of scriptures. I'm wiser today than I was last year, wiser than five years ago, than 10 years ago, than 20 years ago. But many of us are all over the map when it comes to our study of this. What I'm going to be giving you today is some of the best advice I have received on how to study this word. And some of the best advice that I've found when I put into practice radically altered the way I experienced Scripture. So I'm bringing that to your table. I know you've been eating all your life. Years back, we were in Maine. Um, we had to go for my sister-in-law's wedding, and it was a delightful time. Uh, we were staying in Kennebunkport. And um, when you're in Maine, you have to eat. You've got to eat lobster, right? I can count on two hands how many times I've had lobster in my life. I barely need the second hand. When we went, Aiden and I, who are big eaters, decided we're going to this, this lobster shack that was local and was supposed to be really great. The locals told us to go eat there. And so we went in and we sat down, each of us, to a two lobster platter because we were going to eat big. But here's the thing. I don't eat lobster very often. And so when it came to getting the meat out of that carapace, I didn't do so well. The two of us engaged in somewhat of a massacre, a crustacean massacre, trying to extract meat from these lobsters. And we thought we did a pretty good job of it till the waitress showed up at the end. And she looked at the lobsters and she looked at us getting ready to take our plates. And she, she kind of gave us a, you're not from around here thing, right? And she goes, you guys left the best parts. And we're like, oh, and I felt stupid. I felt like I let my son down. You know, I'm supposed to be navigating the course of eating through this life. And I don't know what I'm doing. And so she proceeded to then begin to crack open the shell and showed us how to eat the brain portion and the, the claw portion. And it was magnificent. Now, I could have responded two ways when she brought this to our attention. We could have said, oh, I have been eating my whole life. How dare you? I know how to consume things. Take this away. I didn't want that anyway. Or you can go in humility. You know better than I do. W would you please just give me some instruction? I'm going to see what I can glean from this. Had we rejected her, we would have missed out on the best portions of the lobster. Today, I'm going to offer you some advice on reading Scripture and taking in the Word. And here's what I want you to do with humility 
step into the situation and just go, what can I learn today? What can I glean from teaching today so that I get the most meat out of my consumption in the Word? Can I hear an amen? amen. All right. Romans chapter 15, verse 14 and 15. Paul says this to the church at Rome. He comes to them in much a similar way. Now, Paul knows that they are phenomenal Christians in Rome. But here's what he says to them. He says, personally, I'm convinced about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're amply filled with all spiritual knowledge and competent to admonish and counsel and instruct one another. I know you guys are doing, you know what you're doing. You're not totally at a loss. He says this, still on some points I have written you very boldly and without reservation to remind you about them again because of the grace that was given to me by God. In other words, I know you're fit to instruct one another. I know you're fit to understand these things yourself, but I'm going to remind you of these things because we're both recipients of grace and this stuff's important. That's what we're doing with scripture today. Can we all agree that we are not experts in consuming the word, that there's still something for us to learn in this? Can we agree to that today? All right, then with humility, with humility, let's enter into a discussion about the word and let's see what God can teach us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you now. And we ask, we ask, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us about your word. And God, as we say every week, that it wouldn't just be information we're taking in, but Father, that you would provoke lifestyle change in us as we move forward from this place. That the lifestyle changes we put into place would impact your kingdom and would impact eternity because we're willing to hear and listen to you. God, let that be the case for me and for my brothers and sisters in Christ here and now. Speak to us today. We love you, O Lord. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Let's discuss setting the table, but before we do, we need to see how you guys did with scripture memory so far. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 is our memory verse for the month. If you're just now going, oh yeah, I forgot he said that last week. Write it on the back of your hand or something that's going to cause you to remember. Let's see how you're doing. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Don't look at your Bibles. Look at the screen. Your words were found and I, and they, and your words uh, became for me a joy, became a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I can tell a couple people know that verse. The rest of you, get to work. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on the dashboard of your car. Memorize, memorize, memorize scripture. All right, let's talk about setting the table. How do you know when a meal is serious? Well, it's when you're not eating it over the sink, right? That's, that's you just shoving food in your face. It's when you're not eating behind the wheel of your car. A meal is serious in our household when the table is set. When somebody has taken the time to lay out what is going to be happening on the table. And I want to discuss our Bible study that way. First of all, before we ever dig into the Word, we need to set the table. We need to get ready to eat. This meal is going to be serious. My first instruction to you when you engage in the study of Scripture is this. Pray. Pray. Pray before study. Pray during the study. Pray after the study. Pray. Let's memorize another Scripture really quickly. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Two words. Pray continually. Say it. How often should you pray? Now, there are longer versions of this. There's one that's three words. Pray without ceasing. 
right? But you can memorize that one too if you like. The idea is that we need to be in this constant conversation with God, that, that we're opening up ourselves, this channel of correspondence between us and God, that as we get into his word, we're going, what do you have to teach me today? What are you going to speak to me and into my life today? Pray without ceasing. Before you get into the word, when you pull out your Bible and you're getting ready and you set it down on a table, before you even open the cover, stop and go, okay, God, I'm remembering that this is not just an academic enterprise I'm engaged in right now. Lord, I realize that there are words in here that will shape who I am eternally. God, right now I'm asking you to come and speak to me as I begin to submit this time to you. Does that change the way you open your Bible? Does that change the the experience of beginning to read the Word? Stop and pray at confusing moments. Pray for clarity and understanding. A survey came out last week. LifeWay Research did a study where they found that uh, among Christian churchgoers, that is Christians who are in church every week or nearly every week, not people who just claim Christianity, churchgoers. Among Christian churchgoers, 57% of all churchgoers said they found the Bible very confusing when they tried to study it on their own. That's the majority. Now, what's interesting about this is the same group being studied, then said with 80 plus percent assurance that they felt capable, they could correct other people's scriptural misunderstandings. <laughs> All right? Now, here's what that says to me it says to me that we're more confident about our Bible knowledge in public than we are in private. I get the sense that maybe we don't read this at the level we ought to in private, which is what gives us confidence when we speak in public. You know who knows that you're confused when you're reading your Bible? God does. You're not fooling him. There, there is no sense in which when you're reading this and you don't understand what's going on, there's no sense in which he's like, I'm sure they get it. He knows exactly what's transpiring in your mind or what's not transpiring in your mind. Now let me say this, and let me, let me ask this as a question. Is confusion a good thing? What do you think? I say yes. Absolutely it's a good thing. And you know who agrees with me? Socrates. That guy's smart. Socrates believed that that the best education, the best instruction and understanding came in a circumstance called aporia or perplexity. That it's precisely when a person goes, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. That when you reach that point, that now you're ready to learn. And I believe that's the case from, from personal experience. I believe that's the case as we study the scriptures. When we get into the Word of God and we reach a point where we're going, I don't get this, we've got two opportunities before us. One says, will I stop and go, Lord, I need what you've got here. God, I know there's something for me, and I just need to excavate it. Lord, will you help me? And the other option is to go, I don't get it, and just blow past it. Do you know what most Christians do? We blow past it. I'm sure if it was important, they would have mentioned it in a sermon. And in doing so, we take a golden opportunity and we set it aside. Can I suggest this? If you're praying or if you're studying your scripture and you reach a point of perplexity, that is a great time to offer up a prayer. Let's talk to God. Lord, I believe that you have truth for me. I may be missing it. If I am ready for it, Lord, please grant me the wisdom that you promised me in scriptures. I want to hear from you. James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 says this. This is James' instruction to the church. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom to guide him through decision or circumstance, he is to ask of our benevolent God who gives to everyone generously and without rebuke or blame, and it will be given to him. 
But he must ask for wisdom and faith without doubting God's willingness to help. For the one who doubts is like a billowing surge of the sea that is blown and tossed about by the wind. One of my favorite Christian scholars, uh, Michael Heiser, uh, says this. He says, if you, you encounter something in Scripture that is confusing or strange, it's probably important. If you encounter something in Scripture that's confusing or strange, it's probably important. Take those opportunities to turn to the Lord and go, I want your instruction here. Develop me. And by the way, you're going to have to be patient with that because sometimes you're not going to get it in that Bible study or the study afterwards or the study afterward. But if you persist, you will get it. Stop and pray when something strikes you as particularly important. When you're reading along and something really hammers home and you're like, whoa, that's my life. Whoa, that speaks directly to me. Stop. Talk to God about it. Lord, I need you to amplify this in my life. Let me see this in my life day by day. When you're finished, offer a prayer of commitment to God. After you have finished your Bible study, close the the book and say to the Lord, God, I believe that you want me to retain what I've just read. So God, I'm asking you, I'm committing this to you. Take and remind me of these things throughout my life. Do you see how we've altered this? Instead of just being us reading through pages, do you see how this has changed into a dramatic spiritual experience by invoking one thing? Prayer. Create effective times of study. Create effective times of study. So you pray before, during, after. You need to find a time that is good for you to study in. In the Old Testament, sacrifices are offered to God. You've seen this probably as you've read through the Old Testament, right? People will bring something to the Lord. And I want to suggest that there's something important about what happens when we study Scripture that is very much like a sacrifice. We're taking our time, our energy, our understanding. We're devoting this to the Lord. That's why sometimes you'll hear people reference these as devotions. It's something given to God. Now, I want to think about how the Old Testament sacrifice paradigm informs how we pursue this. In an agrarian culture... Uh, You planted crops, and crops began to yield. And as they came up, you watched, you tended them, you watered them, you pruned the trees, and suddenly fruit is on the vine. Suddenly something is there to take. And the Jews had this paradigm where they would, instead of taking what they wanted so badly because they'd been without it for a season, instead of taking it for themselves, they would take it, and they would go to the temple, and they would devote it to the Lord, the offering of first fruits. And the idea is this, God, I know you have good things for me, and I really want this, but Lord, I'm presenting it to you. This is my first and my best. You take this, and I will understand that you, in response, will deliver more to me, that you will care for me because I have brought you my first and best. How do you do with giving God your first and best? Do you anticipate his blessing when you give him the best of your day? Would you say it's fair to say that you give him the best of your day? How many of you have tried studying your Bible right before bed? Ever done that? How's that go for you? If you're anything like me, you flip open, you start reading, and pretty soon you're like nose first in the pages. Does that happen? Right? Is that your first and best? Or is that what we see in sacrifices in the Old Testament? Is that a lame, blind, weak sacrifice? Are you offering up your leftovers? I think you know what the answer is. The prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, God is speaking through Malachi to his people. Listen to what he says about this kind of sacrifice, the the sacrifice that is taking your leftovers and giving it to God, the things you don't want and giving it to God. Listen to his description. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I, that is God, if I am the father, where is my honor? 
And if I am master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you, listen, when you present blind for sacrifice, the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? When's the best of your day? And who are you giving it to? Do you give it to your office? Do you give it to your boss? Do they deserve it? Do you give the best of your day, the very best portion of your day, do you give it to the internet or television? Do you give it to social media? Is that where your offerings go? I'm I'm suggesting to you this. I'm suggesting to all of us that one of the things we need to be searching for is the time of day when we are most fresh, engaged, and ready to go. That is the moment that we need to be giving to God in the study of his scriptures. I strongly exhort you with myriads of Christian leaders, teachers, and scholars who've gone before, consider offering up the first portion of your morning to God. Now, you might be thinking, I am atrocious in the morning. When I get up, I am a monster. I'm an ogre rampaging through my house. People can't even talk to me. Can I just suggest to you that maybe the reason that's the case is because you're not spending that time with God on a regular basis? Consider it as a possibility. Let me recommend this to you. If, you. if you're not doing a standard Bible study, try this. Set your alarm 20 or 30 minutes early in the day. Get up, get a little exercise, get a shower, sit down with a cup of God's nectar coffee <laughs> and swill that as you begin pouring through the pages of Scripture and talking with God and see if you don't experience a different day. See if things have not dramatically altered for you during the course of your day. Because here's what happens. Often when we give God our best here is that God will go, hey, remember when you did that this morning? Look at this. That fits right there in your life. Look at this. This is what our culture is doing. And he begins applying these passages throughout our day. So we find our conversation that started in the morning perpetuates through the day. Are you willing to try? Giving God our best. It's... Look at what he says. It's evil to give him your leftovers. It's, it's evil to give him the weakest, the neglected. Let's talk about choosing a version of the Bible. Several of you, since I have been preaching here, have asked me, which version of the Bible am I supposed to be using? I'll kind of answer that today. Kind of. All right, so here you see many different versions of the Bible. Notice over on the left are what we would call word-for-word translation. Remember, When I talked to you last week about how we get our Bible, I said we have these thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts. The word-for-word translations over here on the left, they're taken directly from those manuscripts, the early manuscript evidence. And so we've got really good, very accurate versions of the Bible over here on the left. The further you get to the right, the little, right in the middle, we kind of have thought for thought. In other words, ideas are here. But as you go over to the right, we get what's called a paraphrase. Everyone say a paraphrase. Paraphrase means it's not taken directly from those early texts. It means somebody else looked at the Bible and they went, that kind of means this. Uh, so my favorite paraphrase that I've ever read was um, the urban, uh, urban Bible in the 1970s. They call somebody a jive turkey in, in the paraphrase. It's fantastic. Just Paraphrases are fun for reading, for just kind of getting maybe a different vantage point. 
But let me, let me give you uh, what Dr. Michael Brown, who's uh, one of my favorite Christian scholars, he's a delightful Messianic Jew. He says this, uh, the message, that is this version way over here on the right, the message is a paraphrase, it's just basic concepts. He says, the message is not a translation and should not be used as your primary Bible. However, as a very free paraphrase, it's sometimes powerful and brilliant, while at other times it is seriously off target. All right? That being said, that stuff over here, this, this stuff's okay for just consumption so long as you're getting that stuff as well. Okay? Here are the Bibles I use, take it or leave it. The ones that are underlined are the ones that I'm using on a regular basis. The New American Standard Bible, very accurate word-for-word -word translation, but a little bit difficult to read for some people who are maybe new to the scriptures, okay? That's the one that usually I'm quoting from when I, when I quote something in a sermon. The second to the left here is the Amplified. The Amplified version of the Bible is fun. I love this version of the Bible. So here's what the Amplified does. It's a word-for-word -word rendering, but when it when we have a word in the Greek or the Hebrew that means 10, 12, 16 different things, instead of just blowing past it with a single word, they put in brackets and they list all those things. And so they'll explain what's there. If you really want to understand what's in the original text, the Amplified Bible is an awesome tool to use to help get at some of the original language. Okay, so if nothing else, I hope everybody goes out and buys an Amplified Bible at some point, makes it, make it part of your study, it's fun. By the way, it'll make you brilliant in Bible studies. Because as you're, as you're talking, you'll be like, well, I think this means this. And everybody's like, wow. And you've got it right there in your text. <laughs> English Standard Version is another good version. Um, I, I do an audiobook from the ESV every day. So if, if you're not doing an audiobook, it's, if you do an audio Bible, that's an easy way to take that in. The New English Translation right here in the middle is a very new Bible. That's my reading Bible every day right now. This is a great translation of the Bible. They also will explain in the subtext why they translated things the way they did. So they'll give you a different idea of what's there and why. Uh, NIV, how many of you are using NIV regularly right now? A couple of you? I, I still use my NIV sometimes. New, New International Version, it's a very popular version of the Bible. Um, that version of the Bible is not always super accurate, but it is fairly readable. I still use mine because that's where most of my notes from college are. So that's, that's part of why I go back to that. Uh, and then the NLT, which is leaning more toward paraphrase, but it's still a great version of the Bible. Um, the NLT is very readable, but it's not going to be as accurate as this stuff over on the left. So, which version should we use, Ben? All of them. Uh, use a lot of different versions. Here's, I, I'm not going to tell you what version of the Bible to use. Here's what I delight in. I love when I come into studies with believers and they've got all sorts of different versions around the room. And so we can use insights from different texts and how different renderings, maybe to get a different understanding of what's there. Uh, one of my favorite things as a youth minister to see was when I would encounter students who had multiple versions of the Bible open up in front of them and taking notes. Oh, it was heavenly. What a wonderful thing. All right, so choose a version. Find a version that works for you. You might decide, I want to blow through the Bible in a year. The New Living Translation might be a great way to do that because you can read quickly. If you want to get into a deep Bible study, try the, try the Amplified or the NASB. Those are great. All right, after you've chosen a Bible, establish a plan. I took woodworking in high school. Little Miami, when I was in high school, had one of the best woodworking programs in the nation. It was amazing. One of my teachers, Mr. Isaacs, had a phrase that I cannot get out of my head. Every time I hear the word plan, I hear Mr. Isaacs. Proper prior planning prevents pitifully poor projects. 
He said it all the time. Proper prior planning prevents pitifully poor projects. What plans have you made for ingesting the word? Are you planning like a hyena? You're just going to gather what shows up, or are you going to set a table? Are you going to get ready to actually train in the word? Establish a plan. Um, Pete has done a wonderful thing for us to this end. Uh, Pete has gathered a number of the best Bible plans that are out there, and we've got them available through our website right now. So if you go from this place and you're like, I need a place to start, go to our website, find one of the plans that fits you, and begin engaging in it. Let me just talk briefly about some of these plans. Number one, you don't have to read the Bible. Wait, what? What have we just been talking about? Uh, Here's what I mean by that. Audio Bibles exist. Make use of them. It's one of the best things that has happened with modern technology. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, that doesn't count, Ben. Would you say that to someone who is blind? Probably not. Would you say that to the vast majority of Christians throughout history who were illiterate? No. Most of the people who took in the word throughout the ages had to do so by someone else reading it to them. And so it's okay to be read to. Let me tell you how this benefits me personally. My, my inclination when I'm reading the Bible is to hit a chapter and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get through three chapters. And an hour later, I'm halfway through the first chapter I went through because I keep stopping and thinking and making notes and stuff. And it prevents me from moving very far. The great part about an audio Bible is you can't stop it. It just goes. And so what I miss out on by digging in deeply, I can sometimes get now, I can get the whole experience because someone else is reading to me and I'm not, I'm not able to stop them, if that makes sense. All right, so audio Bibles are a good thing. To that end as well, I want to just talk to the parents in the room for just a second. When it comes to being fed, it's not just taking in audio Bibles, but you are responsible on some level or another for feeding your children the Scripture. You've got to get it into their lives. If you're not feeding them, it's just like not feeding a baby. That would be cruel. That would be awful. So it's your obligation as parents to put some scripture into your kids' lives to begin preparing them. Now, as I said last week, is all of the scripture appropriate for children? Is it? No, no, definitely not. That being said, there are, um, there are Bible comic books. There's Bible manga. There's, there are, there's uh all sorts of children's Bibles that are out there that give them a good sense of the stories. That is going to equip them for later on so that when they're junior high, high school, we don't have to go back and go, okay, this is what happened. Instead, they're like, oh, I'm basically familiar with that. All right, so give them a leg up on their understanding of the word. Sometimes being fed is an important thing. Let's discuss reading plans really quickly. I'm just going to give a snapshot of these, then we're going to move on. So some of the uh, reading plans you'll find on our website are things like the 5 by 5 by 5 plan. It's a New Testament and a year plan. Five days a week you're going to read, and you're going to read just a little bit of the New Testament every day for the course of a year. If you've never dug into the scriptures, if you are brand new to a Bible reading plan, can I just recommend you do this one? It's five days a week, not terribly difficult, but you'll read the whole New Testament in a year, and that's, that's some good success. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. You've read the New Testament backward and forward, but you're not familiar with the Old Testament. Try an Old Testament in the year plan. Go through the Old Testament. Figure out what's back there. Um, There's another great plan called the Every Word Plan. It's three-year Bible study. It takes you through just a chapter at a time through most of the Bible, sometimes two chapters, but the whole Bible in three years. Great thing to do if you want to study uh, very intimately with uh, smaller passages. Then there are bigger meals. 
the chronological Bible plan. You can read the Bible in chronological order. You guys are all aware this isn't chronologically ordered, right? Whoops, maybe. <laughs> it's not. Um, so chronological Bible, you can do the through, uh, through the year Bible plan daily by genre. So they've got different genre that you read each day of the week. It's kind of a cool way to do it. Straight through the Bible readings, you can do the Bible in two years. Uh, then there's what we would call the buffet Christian. If you are ready to take in a lot really quickly and you're committed or maybe you're retired, here are some options for you. Uh, the Robert Murray McShane Bible study. I did this three years ago. It's four bookmarks that go into your Bible. And then each day you check off one box from each of the bookmarks as you go through and read, but you're taking in a lot of scripture. So you'll do the Old Testament once, you'll do the New Testament twice, uh, and then the Psalms and Proverbs more often than that as well in one year. If you are really hardcore, I've never done this. You would impress me greatly if you do this. Uh, the Grant Horner system. It's 10 chapters a day. You, by, by the time one year is done, you will have read the Gospels four times. The Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, twice. Paul's letters, four to five times. Old Testament wisdom literature, six times. The Psalms, two times. Proverbs and the book of Acts, 12 times. And the Old Testament and prophetic books, one and a half times. That's intense. <laughs> I'll be impressed if anybody does that, but it's there if you want it. Now, here's what I want to say with all this. More is better. More is better. I don't mean I, you just should read and read and read. You might decide to do focused readings, but I mean do more than you're doing right now. Can we all agree that probably we could do more? All right. More than you're doing right now might look like this. If you're doing a daily Bible study and the scriptures, maybe add an audio Bible to your commute or to your exercise time so you can take in a little bit more of the word. And it's just it's filling you up. If you're, if you're not doing anything, there's a great app called the YouVersion. Have you seen this on your phone? Um, and it will give you daily reminders to do various Bible studies. They've got tons of Bible study options there. I would recommend this to you. If you're doing a version already, do an actual study in, in an actual Bible. Actually have a Bible that you can begin opening up every day and underlining. Why is that important? Because we're not sure if your technology is going to be with you a decade from now, but you can have one of these throughout the whole of your life. Start putting notes in it. You're going to carry it to church every Sunday. Start filling it up with all sorts of notes and indications of what you're learning. Okay, let's discuss digging in. So, we set the table. How do we eat? From, from, from plate to palate, I want you to imagine this. I want you to just get a visual of this and, and get a mental understanding of, of this description I'm going to give you. Imagine you're sitting in a restaurant. And in the restaurant, you're kind of glancing around the eatery, and you see a person putting onions on chocolate ice cream. Something about you staggers within, and somewhat startled by the culinary blunder, you look around for someone to mirror your sentiment, you know, to commiserate with, only to see another patron biting directly into a crab, like shell and all, just and then chewing noisily as you hear their teeth cracking and breaking. Getting a sense? Glancing across the table from this poor soul, you witness her table companion trying to suck up a steak through a straw. Drawing breath to try to help this hapless couple, you, your readied words are drowned out by yet another table who together create a skin-crawling symphony of shrieking dinnerware as they scrape forks against plates over and over again. Are you getting a sense of how that feels? Get the visceral experience. Do you feel that way when you're in a Bible study and you hear people misusing and abusing the word? There are so many Christians who will trot things out that are just 
the wrong application and they haven't thought it through and they're taking things that aren't promises and they're making them sound like promises do you feel that same way when you're in a body that's consumer supposed to be consuming the word and people are doing it wrong the more you study the more you will now should we hate such people no of course not this is an opportunity to lovingly and compassionately compassionately instruct people how do we consume it well then How do we make sure we're not the people putting onions on ice cream or biting directly into crabs? Let me give you some ideas of how we're going to do this rightly. First of all, historical context. Historical context. Everyone say context. Context is important. You want to begin asking yourself questions at the outset like this. When was this written? When was it written? Now that's going to make a huge difference. Let me illustrate that. If you were writing to somebody during the Civil War, would it sound different than if you were to write to be writing somebody in 2020? Would your audience be receiving it differently? You've all read like these soldiers' notes that they send back to their sweethearts during the Civil War, and it's the most eloquent, poetic, and the script is beautiful, and you're like, who are these people? How did they write this way? And then, you know, you see what we're doing with text is we can't even spell out a single word without abbreviating things, and you're like, ah, we, we are a different people. That changes the way we read something when we see the history, the time period that was behind it. Ask where was it written? And who was it written to? Does it make a difference if I'm writing to Christians in China versus Christians in the United States? Would that make a difference? Would you need to know that in order to understand things rightly? What about Christians in the Middle East? Would you need to know that? Right? The the location makes a difference. If we're talking about Uh, somebody in the southern kingdom of Judea writing. It's going to be different than somebody in the northern kingdom of Israel, which will be different from the Jews who have been taken into captivity in Babylon, which is going to be different from the early church as Paul writes to, say, Corinth. They're very different places, and in order to understand what Paul means, it's really important to understand who he's talking to and when he's talking. What was life like at that moment? Man, when you read the, the book of Ezekiel, You need to know that these people are enslaved. They're they're off in Babylon. They're in captivity. And something is different about this book because of the people he's speaking to and the condition in which he's speaking to the men. Knowing what the setting is will change the way we interpret these things. So, facts first. Find out who was writing, who they're writing to, when they're writing, what they're writing about. Quick commercial. If you take nothing else away from my sermon today, take this. There is an awesome website called Read Scripture. It's the Bible Project. Go to YouTube. Type in Bible Project. Let's say you're going to read from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, Bible Project. Type it into YouTube. It'll pull up a video that'll take six to seven minutes to help trot out all this cultural context, the layout of the book, when it was written, to whom it was written, how it was written, what you need to know about the church it was written to. They'll trot out all that stuff. And they do it in a cartoon form. They're entertaining. All right? So take in the Bible project. It's very useful for getting and unpacking this stuff. Before you read any book of the Bible, check out Bible Project. See what they've done on it. Okay, let's talk about literary styles. I know you were all very excited to get to church today, hoping that we would be able to talk about literary styles. Yes. Delivered. All right. You know that there are different styles of literature used in the scriptures. I want to I challenge you with this. If you don't know the style of literature you're reading, you're probably misappropriating and misinterpreting the scripture you're reading. Okay? Let me explain. 
Um, the first uh, category I want to look at is the Old Testament law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. These five books of the Bible are laws. They're regulations. Are they regulations for you? Everybody hesitates. No, they're not. They're regulations for the Jewish people during that time in history. So for instance, occasionally I'll be in a conversation with somebody and be like, you're a preacher? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why do you have tattoos? I thought the Bible said you can't have tattoos. Well, does the Bible say that you can't have tattoos? Well, in Leviticus, it says, you shall not mark your bodies as the heathens do. And people will be like, that means tattoos. Well, no, it doesn't. Actually, they're talking about Baal worship where people gouged at their flesh in worship of the Baals. They didn't really know ink tattooing in that period in the Mediterranean. But that aside, if you think that that's written to us, you've got a problem because you know what the immediate preceding verse says? And men shall not cut their hairs on, hair on the sides. Sinners. Understanding what you're reading and to whom it was written is going to be really important. Jewish law is to the Jewish people. The, the regulations that you see put in practice during the law period are important for the Jewish people. Does it, does it mean that we can't derive principles from this for ourselves? No, of course we can. We can understand a great deal about who we are based on these things, but we need to know that we're reading the law, the regulations for the Jewish people. That said, there's also a lot of history in those first five books, Right? And so we want, we want to read those things as history as well. Let's talk about the rest of the history books in the Old Testament. So we have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And here's what you need to know about reading the histories. They're factual stories about actual people and circumstances. Which means they're good and they're bad and they are ugly. There's a lot of ugly. So when you read, for instance, the book of Judges, if you were to flip open your Bible and go, let's see what the Lord has for me today. And you flip open to the book of Judges, you might find yourself a little confounded because what you're reading sounds atrocious. And you're like, how can God let something like this happen? And you know what God wants you to draw from that? How can humans do this? And how do these things happen? Oh, look, it's when people live according to their own standards. And so there's teaching that's taking place there, but it's not because you're looking at it going, I need to be like Samson. Don't be like Samson. All right, so we have uh, the history books, and we've also got Old Testament poetry books, the Psalms and Song of Solomon. Here's what you need to know about poetry. It is not to be read like a police report. Poetry is not to be read like a police report. Poetry is figurative, it is hyperbolic in its language, it's emotionally charged, so we've got to be careful not to do literalistic readings with a lot of these texts. Now, if you're stopping and going, whoa, did Ben just say not to take the Bible literally? That's not what I said. I said, take it, take it literally, but take it as the literature it is. Poetry is not a police report. So for instance, in the Psalms, when we read a passage that says, and the trees on the field will clap their hands, we're not meant to take away botanical knowledge that trees have hands. That's not what it's saying. Or if we see in the scriptures that in, in God's presence, the mountains melt like wax, it's hyperbolic language. It's not saying that if God shows up, mountains dissolve. Or rock dissolves. Do we understand that? Let me tell you what the most, one of the most egregious transgressions of this is. The book Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is about... You are all hesitant to say it. I don't want to be the one who says that out loud in church. It's about, it's about the sexual relations between men and women. 
And the problem with that is, for years, the church has taken and misappropriated that in weird ways to make it sound like the church in Christ. And it gets really awkward when you're in a worship service and you're singing a song, His Banner Over Me is Love, and you're like, ugh, no. This is, this is very inappropriate to sing about Jesus that way. That is a book about human sexuality. All right, that being said, poetry. Now I want to draw your attention to wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Now, I want to say this. I believe that Job is history. I believe that Job actually occurred. There are some Christians who hold that Job is an allegory and written as an allegory. Regardless of which position you take there, um, I, I will say this. Job is definitely wisdom literature. And here's what I mean by that. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are written to basically inform us of what the good life is from God's perspective. How should we understand our lives from God's perspective. Um, the problem with this, and one of the misappropriations of this, is sometimes people will take Proverbs and they'll be like, this is a promise of God. No, it's wisdom literature. It's describing what, is, what the world is like and what our best life is like. So in the Proverbs, you'll read things like this. Raise up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. Well, have you guys known anybody who were devout Christians who did their best to raise awesome Christian children, and those kids just went off the deep end and became horrible people. Did the scripture fail? No, somebody failed to read the genre correctly. It's not a promise of God. It's saying this, raise up the child in the way they should go, and here's the condition. They're, they're likely to be better people for it. I'll give you another one, Proverbs 23, 14. If you strike a child with the rod, you will deliver him from death. Is that meant to be taken as a promise of God? If I hit my kid with a stick, he will become immortal? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep, that's it. Let's pray and go home. <laughs> what did you learn at church today? Come here, boy. Uh, read the Proverbs as what they are. They're instruction for our wisdom, for our understanding. They are not meant to be taken as promises of God. That said... The Old Testament prophets are what we want to look at next. Do you know what a prophet is? My five-year-old and my eight-year-old do. A prophet is somebody who hears directly from God, and they communicate God's word directly to the people. This is somebody who stands in the presence of the Lord and gets a word from him. So in the Old Testament, when you're reading through the prophets, and they say, thus says the Lord, or the God of hosts says, just like that passage we just read in Malachi, you're hearing from God. This is God speaking. Okay, on to the New Testament. We have New Testament histories. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all biographies of Jesus that we know as the Gospels or the Good News. And then there's the Book of Acts that is the history of the first church. Right? It's the first decades of the church's existence. Again, read those as histories. Real people, real circumstances. All these things really happen. Next, we have the New Testament letters, also known as epistles. Let me say something important to you here about the epistles. These letters are not written to you, but they are written for you. I'll say that again. The letters are not written to you, but they are written for you. In order to understand the letters, we have to know who they're written to, why they're written to those people, why they're written the way they are for our instruction. Amen? All right. Then there is the New Testament apocalyptic literature. One book, it gets its own category, the book of Revelation. How many of you have ever tried reading the book of Revelation? Okay, when you read that percentage of people confused by the scripture, there you go, that's the one. 
Um, the book of Revelation is its own genre. It bears, it bears earmarks of other works in the Bible, like Ezekiel has some mirroring passages from the book of Revelation. Uh, but the book of Revelation is very symbolic, highly figurative, um, and needs to be interpreted as such. It's the only book of the Bible that comes with its own warning label. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Be very careful how you handle this book. You will receive blessings if you handle it the right way. You will receive curses if you add to or take away from this. If anybody messes with this, those things are going to fall upon them. Okay, so warning label on Revelation. Quick instruction with regard to the book of Revelation. Before you dig into the book of Revelation, make sure you've got a good working knowledge of the whole rest of the Bible. It's going to be very helpful. In addition to that, when you get into the book of Revelation, try not to lock down on one single interpretation and assume that's what's going to happen. Let me tell you why. When Jesus first appeared on earth, when Jesus came in his first coming, everyone had been studying Messiah, who he would be, and how he would turn out, and nobody got it right. Not one person on the far side of that understood what was happening or how it was coming about. Only in the aftermath and as it began to appear did people go, oh, this is what's happening right now. With regard to the book of Revelation, be open-minded, be open-eyed, know the different views, careful about locking down on any one of them. Okay, let's discuss the human element. We need to find the author's intended meaning whenever we read. It is important for us to know the person we're reading. These people who are writing these books of the Bible, they're real human beings. And so the more you know them as a personality, the more interesting their discussion because, because, becomes because God has let their personality flow through those words. You can see them there in those pages. Do you know what their contentions were, the, the, the problems they had? Do you know what they experienced in suffering for the cause of Christ? As you know those things, it becomes more interesting to you. Kind of like if you got a letter from a really good friend. Know the people. Know their purposes, what they're trying to write, to whom, and why. Why is this person writing? What do they want to say? What does God want to say through them? Know the objective meaning. Everyone say objective. Objective means regardless or beyond anybody else's comprehension or anybody else's understanding of things. It is the opposite of subjective. Now, here's what happens in most Bible studies. You've all been in a Bible study where this happens. You know what this passage means to me? Proceed to fill in whatever Oprah nonsense that somebody wants to trot out right? And it happens all the time. Let me explain to you why this should be problematic with an illustration. Let's imagine you've got a daughter. She's three or four years old, right? And you're walking hand, with, hand in hand with her, and, and she says something about the sun, and you inform her. You say, hey, you know what the sun is? The sun's actually a star. It's a star that's much closer to planet Earth than, uh, than other stars in the sky. And somebody passing by you goes, whoa, hang on just a second there. I listen into your conversation, and if I understand you right, the spontaneous combustion of rabbits is, in fact, the cause of nearly every forest fire that's ever been. Your daughter replies, no, he said stars, not bunnies, and nothing about forest fires. Bunnies are nice. And the stranger gets down on a knee in front of your daughter and says, yes, exactly my point. Stars are fires, much like the fires that consume our forests, which just happen to be filled with bunnies. And also... What he said indicates that we should maybe slaughter all the bunnies before they turn our planet into a star. What? No, says your daughter. I think he meant that the sun is a star. The stranger replies, for me, what was said means that we're all stars trying to rid ourselves of chemically volatile rodents. Now, as absurd as that sounds, 
I have been in Bible studies where people misapply the Scripture over and over and over again, and they never get corrected by anybody because everybody goes, well, I wouldn't want to tell anybody they're wrong. Sometimes you can be wrong. Sometimes you can read a Scripture the wrong way. I have done it. I've taught things that were wrong, and I found out later, discovered that I taught things that were mistaken. We've got to be careful with how we approach that. It's not just about how we feel about it. Let me tell you a very important strategy for understanding the Scriptures. This is really important. Again, if you're going to take away one thing, hang on to this. You are not ready to say what this passage means to me until you can say what this passage means to everyone. You're not ready to say what this passage means to me until you're ready to say what this passage means to everyone. Until you know the facts of the passage, applying it to yourself means you're probably going to take it out of context. Let's talk about swallowing. We've got the food into our mouths now. How do we ingest the scriptures rightly? First of all, pragmatic personal application. Wait a second, Ben. Isn't that we just said don't do? No. Apply it to yourselves after you have an objective understanding of the text. When you know what the text means objectively, ask yourself, how does this intersect with my life? How does this change who I am and and the way I think? How does this affect the way I'm living right now? Does it reaffirm what I'm doing? Is it telling me that I'm doing the right thing? Or does it describe a reality that is challenging the way my life is being conducted? Apply it to yourself. Apply it to your culture. How does this passage differ from my cultural context? When I look around at the world, does it look like what I'm seeing in the pages of Scripture, for good or for ill? Apply it to our nation. Apply it to our congregation. Make application to the culture in which you're in. Uh, Strive for objectivity. When you're reading, do you ever feel uncomfortable? Have you gotten in the Word and started reading something? You're like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Pause and ask yourself, why am I uncomfortable right now? What is this said that is a threat to me, that is making me feel uncomfortable? Become aware of how it is challenging you, and then if you say, if you can look at yourself and go, I'm not being objective, I'm trying to force my interpretation on the Scripture, it's time to change your view, not the Scripture. All right, fourthly, sharpen your sword. The Word of God is the sword, all right? This is the sword of the Spirit. Here's the deal. I want you to write in your Bibles. I was uh, teaching last year at Northern Hills. I was teaching our high school group. We had uh, we'd taken in a Nepali church, a group of Nepali refugees. Our, our city is, I think we got more than 15,000, maybe 20,000 Nepali refugees who are in our city. And so uh, we had a, a church that started at, uh, in, in Northern Hills with all Nepali refugees. And some of them started coming to the youth group. And one of the gals, I was talking about writing in the pages of the word, and one of the gals, I could tell, she was just like, how dare you? I mean, for her, what was said was terrifying. How could you suggest that we write in the scriptures? And so I could tell she was feeling a little off by this. And I said, you know, what's the problem? Why does that bother you so much? And she goes, this is supposed to be holy. And I'm like, it is. Why is this holy? Is it holy because it's untouched and untouchable? Or is it holy because something happens when I get into here with my God? I believe this is holy, and I believe you can make it more and more holy by personalizing it, not editing the stuff you don't like. I mean, writing in the margins. Why did God say this? 
underlining things. Oh, that passage really hammers home. Changing the titles. Okay, well, this was not in the original version of the Bible, so I'm going to put my own title in here that helps me to remember this passage. Outlining the best verses that you've got there, marking those out, putting in cross-references that drive you to different places. When you hear a sermon that's impacting you deeply on a passage, writing stuff in the margins so the next time you go to that passage, you'll be like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. See, the purpose of us having this is not so that it can sit on a shelf and, and collect dust and be holy in that way. The purpose of us having this is so that we can beat the lives out of it and ourselves as we interact with one another. Mark up your Bibles. One of my greatest joys in ministry, we had uh, two young men who converted in rapid succession. One of them came to Christ, uh, brand new to the Christian faith, raised outside of the Christian faith. Uh, He actually, he and his sister ended up winning their father to Christ as well after they came to the faith. But when he came in, the first thing he said to me after being baptized was, I've got this other friend, and I need to win him to Christ. And so he did. He went and he won him to Christ. And the two of them were in church. (laughs) This is awesome. And they had their Bibles. It was about three months after they'd been converted. Three months. And I saw that their Bibles were laying on the table. And so I went and just started flipping open their Bibles. And the first half of their Bibles was filled with notations. They had already been so ingrained in the word that they had filled up half the, how many of you have half your Bible full of notes already? If you believe this was God's word, wouldn't you? Hmm. Fifth, memorize usable scriptures and ideas. I'm trying to get everybody in the church to memorize text. I want this to be a part of your regular experience in the word. Find things that hit home Mark them out and start memorizing them. Why? I mean, it's right there. I can go back to it if I need to. Why is for this reason, Bob Ross. Have you ever watched Bob Ross? I love Bob Ross. If you've never seen Bob Ross, what a serene, wonderful experience this man is. He's a painter. You remember from Joy of Painting on PBS, and he would, he would, cover this palette with paint and and then he'd go let's you know let's add a little lizard crimson to this you know and he'd he'd mix up these paints and as he's got it all on his palette there he's able to create these masterpieces imagine if you only had one paint on that palette only one kind right (laughs) somebody get a lot of messages all right it's the lord put paint on your palette Here's what happens. When we memorize scripture, it's like putting paint on God's palette. If you want to hear from the Lord, take what's here and stow it in here, and God will begin using it through your mouth and your thoughts and your ideas. It's, it's essentially giving something to God and going, I want your word to be challenging me every day. So I'm going to commit time to memorize it. I'm going to commit it to my memory. That way, when I'm reading other texts, I can go, that's just like what I memorized in. And God begins speaking to you. And God begins speaking through you because you've committed your mind to him. Memorize usable scriptures. Okay, let me just make a quick note of commentaries and lexical tools. There are going to be times when you're in the Word and you're like, I don't know what to do with this passage. And so you think to yourself, I could probably get a little bit deeper. There's a great resource called Blue Letter Bible. If you want to make use of it, blueletterbible.org. On the internet, it helps you to get to the original languages if you want to know what something says in the Hebrew or the Greek but you don't speak Hebrew or Greek, it will help you to get at those passages. In addition, commentaries. A commentary is when some brilliant scholar of today or yesteryear has wrestled with this for the whole of their lives. And they go, I want to tell you about 1 Timothy chapter 2, and they begin to spell out in great detail. They take one chapter of the Bible and they spell out over the course of maybe even an entire book 
what that portion of the Bible means. Commentaries are awesome for us to read. Um, some of the best minds in history, we can wrestle with them as we understand these things. But let me say this, commentaries are not scripture. Here's what I mean by that. This measures the truth of a commentary, not the other way around. Amen? All right, let's close out. Healthy digestion. All right, so we've, we got it from the plate to the palate. It's in our mouth. We're consuming it and swallowing it. How do I get the most out of my time after I've taken in the Word? Number one, meditate on what you've read. Meditate on what you've read. Psalm chapter 1, 1 through 3 says this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. This is how the Psalms begin. Taking in the word and meditating on it. By meditation, we're not talking about sitting in the full lotus position and saying om and emptying your brain. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Western meditation, which means this, I take an idea or a concept, I hold it in mind and I chew on it throughout my day. I think about it and I think about it and I think about it and I own it. If you've never done biblical meditation, after you read one morning, try this, get a rock, like a stone, put it in your shoe. You've all had a rock in your shoe, right? You know how irritating that is? Every time you think, man, that's irritating, you go back to the scripture and you go, okay, what was I meditating on? And you think about it and you, you chew on it. You wrestle with God. Meditate on what you've read. Secondly, discuss what you've read. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what Paul says to the church at Colossae. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. He's saying, let the, let the word of God richly dwell within you. And you know what it should be like in you? It should be like something that just keeps spewing out. It's coming out in wisdom and in teachings and in an understanding, even to the point of songs and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, this should be so in you and so richly in you that you're, it's, you're spewing the word. That sounds terrible. You're spewing the word. Everybody around you knows that you've been in the Word. Everybody around you understands and perceives. So, discuss what you've read. Talk about it with, um, with people who love the Lord. Introduce it as a concept to people who don't know the Lord. Talk to them about the wisdom you've gleaned from Scriptures. It's going to do two things. It's going to shore it up in your mind so that you know and understand it more. And secondly, for those people who maybe aren't in the Word, it's going to compel them to think maybe they ought to be. And for those who are totally outside of the word, it might be an invitation in their lives that changes their eternity. Talk about what you're reading. I'll close on this. I want you to envision right now, get in your mind, what this body, what this group of people would be like if five years from now, every one of us in this room has read at least one chapter a day for every day of that full five years. Do you think you would be different as an individual? Do you? Do you think this fellowship would be different? Stronger. Oh, stronger. Do you think this fellowship would be powerful in the Lord? You know that we would. Do you think we would impact our families? Do you? Yes. Do you think we would impact this community? I believe that we would. 
if we academically know that that's the case, I don't think there's one of us who doubts for a second that that's the case. Why, oh, why are we not doing it already? We have no excuse to not leave today and begin ingesting this each and every day in prayer, taking it in, in study and life application and understanding the history and the context, taking it in, drinking it in, studying it, receiving the word, talking about the word, meditating on the word each and every day. You know that it will change you. You know that it will change your family. You know that it will change this community. Let's feed. Our Father and God, Lord, convict us. Be the stone in our shoe. God, as we go forth from this place, I pray, Father, that you would call us to action. Lord, that we would begin the difficult task of studying your word every single day. And that as we get into your word and it begins changing us and we begin changing one another, Father, that you would, you would bless this body of believers, that you would deepen us and increase us. We love you, O oh Lord. Thank you for loving us and giving us your word. Amen.